message this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. If your Bibles are Kindle or iPad or iPhone, you can turn there as we'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> I've entitled it Search for Significance. There are a number of other titles that obviously I could have been assigned it to. To me, the search for significance and the quest for identity are ignored by some and really a driving force for others. Where am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Are extremely important questions to ask. But to be really honest with you, even more important questions to have answered. They're great questions to ask, but really they're even more important questions to have answered. I grew up in the 60s. I know that ages me, but it's not a surprise to any of you that I've been around for a long time. Growing up in the 60s, there was a classic set of circumstances that were really pervasive over that particular area where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were asking those very questions. Sadly, most of them were asking the questions in a drug-induced super. Where am I? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Those really were classic questions that were asked in those days. While they were great questions to ask, the pursuit of the answers really set the course for many people's lives and existence. In the 60s, there were a lot of people who chose to ignore the pursuit of the answers to those questions, and to be honest with you, wasted their lives in drugs. They simply existed. Their favorite soap operas became the young and the useless, the waste of our lives, and as the stomach turns. Come on, I spent a lot of time coming up with that. Thank you. That was good, right? I mean, that's good. Days of our lives instead of the waste of our lives. Good. Don't get it. There were a lot of people that did that, though, who really ignored the answer to those questions and ignored the questions themselves who literally ruined and wasted their lives. Others performed just the routine tasks of life. They went to work. They got a job. They got a check. They went home. They retired and died never really finding the answer to any of those questions. And there were a lot who went to the other extreme who found themselves driven by finding the answer to those questions. They were driven to find success and happiness, many in the pursuit of careers instead of jobs or a collection of material possessions, again driven by the desire to keep up with the neighbors so that I could have what everybody else has. It defined the 70s and clearly defined the 80s. Until somewhere along the way in the 90s and the 21st century that many found themselves saying, is that it? I'm not sure if I really found what I'm looking for. And now, where we are today, we find ourselves living in an era where those things that we really valued and thought would give us success and status and satisfaction and acceptance are beginning to collapse around us. And here we are, 50-some years later, having many people ask the same questions. Why are we here? What are we doing? What does the future hold? Will I even have a future? And where do I belong? There's a lot of people desperately hoping and hanging on to to all my connections to social media that, that give me what I really honestly long for, significance and acceptance. There are great things in technology today with Facebook and Twitter and all the things that go along with that that whole genre of things that provide connectivity to other people. But if we're really honest, in a lot of cases, not any of you, and certainly not any of you, but for a lot of people who are so heavily involved in that, it's this real desire to make sure that I've got a lot of friends, 
to make sure that I'm really connected. That's why they'll brag about how many people are following them on Twitter or Facebook or some of those kind of things to, to either feel good about themselves or how popular I am or how many people are aware of what's going on around me. But if we're really honest, God honest with some of those, not everyone, a lot of them are doing it for that one thing they long for more than anything else, significance and acceptance. And to know that I belong to something or someone and people understand me and feel I can feel good about myself when I know that. Now, none of you wrestle with that. But there are people out there who do. And that's one of the reasons they're so heavily involved in trying to make sure that I'm connected as much as possible because I'm desperately longing for significance and acceptance and understanding. 2,000 years ago, Peter said to people asking the same questions, I just want you to know, your value, your acceptance, your significance, your meaning can be found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. So come to Him. And as you do, you will find purpose and value and acceptance. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. I love Scripture. You obviously know that. I wouldn't do what I do in regards to Sunday morning and so often and set of topics. We stay with the book. We go through series and all of those kind of things. And you get to certain sections. I love Philippians. I love Ephesians. I love the book of James. I love Paul's writings. And then you get to certain sections. Like I couldn't wait till I got to Peter months and months ago when I really felt God leading us into Peter. I thought I can't wait to get there. A lot of things I want to share. And then you get to a certain section of one of those books and you think, That's why I love this book. This is one of those pieces. As you come to him, verse 4, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, do you believe the stone is very precious, but to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone that causes people to stumble is a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you're a chosen people. This is that piece, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are. You're the people of God. Once you had nothing, and now you have everything. Once you weren't a people, but now you are a people, a people of God. Once you never received mercy, had not received mercy, didn't even deserve mercy. But now you've received mercy, and you find it in Him. I don't know that there's any way that I could fully, in a message, share with you the significance of what Peter is trying to say in just these few verses, but I really do want to try this morning. Many people in life are fascinated with celebrities. We read about them, we stand in line for autographs with them and for them and from them. If we're lucky enough to meet them or be around them, we'll find ourselves name dropping. Do you know who I met? Do you know who I know? Do you know who I've been around? And we'll talk about it, especially if we're associated with them in any way or the other. In England, people are fascinated by the royal family. They know they could never get inside, they know they could never get near them, but they're just intrigued by that particular stage of life where someone is that special and that well-treated and that significant. But then when you read a section of Scripture like this, Peter looks through all of that and elevates us higher than they'll ever be. No matter how valuable they feel in a 
the royal family, or no matter how special they are because of their status in our American society, whatever status we put on them, Peter said, look, I want to take you to a level they're only going to be able to look up to. No matter how significant they feel, no matter how wealthy they are, no matter how incredible they may be in their own world, Peter said, I want to take you to a level that they would never, ever reach without Jesus Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're a daughter of the living God. They may be princes and princesses in that society, but I want, to know that, I want you to know that you are a prince of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are a prince of the God Almighty. And Peter said, I just want you to feel a sense of that. And not a person in Peter's writing could ever fathom that they could be that. That's why it's so amazingly special that he's writing to them. Because that's the last place they would ever consider themselves being. And Peter said, I just want you to know how special you are. How valuable you are. How significant you are. Regardless of the world standards or what they say on them, Peter said, I want you to make an understanding. I want, in this particular context, to make one of the most profound statements that you can ever imagine as he begins to elevate us to a status and a level more important than any other place in all of society. Look at how he starts. Come to him. The hymn is obviously Christ. You and I as ordinary individuals get this extraordinary privilege of coming into the presence of the King of Kings, the God of the universe, without an appointment, without having to wait, without having to go through someone else to get there. Is that not amazing? That you and I can come to the God of the universe, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can call him Abba as Jesus started the Lord's Prayer saying, Daddy, Papa. And you can come without an appointment, without having to wait, without having to go through someone else to get there. I don't wait very well. (laughs) I know that's a surprise to some of you. If the light turns green, go. What are you waiting for? At the mall, seriously. If you're going this way, get in this line. If you're going that way, get in this line. How hard is that? People in this line turning over here, and I just want to turn. I don't wait very well. I go to a doctor. They say, your wait's going to be an hour. I said, I'm not staying. Oh, well, sir, your appointment. I said, I'm not staying. Here's my cell phone. Call me when he's five minutes waiting for me. Nurses look look at me like I'm insane. (laughs) I just don't wait well. I know that's a surprise to some of you, especially a surprise to my wife. She's shocked by that. I love the fact that the God of the universe has time for me any time of the day, all the day long, any time I come to him. And I'm welcomed into his presence. My kids have always known that they have direct access to their dad. As much as possible, as much as lies within me, regardless of who's around me or what I'm doing, if one of them come or one of them call, as much as I can, I will have make sure that everyone knows that. I've talked to three people this week who have said in the business world, my kids have the same privilege. I love that one picture that many of you may remember in John Kennedy's time in the White House, that little door that would open every once in a while, and there would John John be in front of the one of them. Get out. How did you guys do that? One of the most powerful men on the planet. And all John John saw him is what? Daddy. That's how God views us. That's what Peter is trying to help them understand. You can come to the living God. That's why he starts the Lord's Prayer by saying, Papa, Abba. Instead of any other way, dear God of the universe. With all those things that we may say when we come to God in prayer, my dad still prays King James English. (laughs) 
when he prays, and I love, I adore my dad, but it fascinates me when I hear people talk with such eloquence and power that the God of the universe, Jesus himself, would start the Lord's Prayer by saying, Papa. <laughs> when a disciple said, would you teach us how to pray? Because you have something we don't have. He said, it's just like this, Papa. That's what Peter is saying to them. Jesus said a long time ago in Matthew chapter 11, you want something, you come. You're weak, you're weary, you're heavy laden. Come on, everybody. All are welcome to this place. In this context here, Peter uses imagery that every first century Jew would understand. I got to remember, Peter's passion would have been to minister to the Jewish nation while Paul's passion was to minister to the Gentile nation. Naturally, there's crossovers as the stories began. And now 2,000 years later, as they've read these letters, but his passion was to write to a Jewish audience. He draws them to a context they would best understand. You see, in Jewish circles, only the priest would have direct access to God, and only the high priest would be the one that would really have direct access to God, and the only one that could ever even imagine going into the Holy of Holies. It was such an amazing moment that they would tie ropes to their feet so that if in the presence of God, somehow God showed up, they would die. And if they did, they could drag them out because there was no way they were going to enter in that section. That's the people Peter's writing to when he calls them a royal priesthood. They're going, there's no way, Peter. We know what it's like for century after century after century after century. We know that no one can go there. We know that we don't have direct access to God. We know it's only a special privilege for few. It would be the furthest thing in a Jewish mind that an ordinary Jew could have direct access to God. Someone would have to be the intermediary to go to God on their behalf. That's why Jesus would say of himself, and Paul would say again later in the book of Hebrews, you don't have any other mediator but God himself, that Jesus Christ, who has made it available so that we can come directly to God. That blew away the Jewish first century mind. But that's what he is saying. And here Peter tells us and them, we can all come to God. As a matter of fact, look at how he writes. See the first word that goes there? As you come. How's he writing? He's writing in an assumption form. He's writing as if they already know that. <laughs> they, don't, they may know it, but I don't know if they believe it. 2,000 years later, I'm not sure if we all do. But Peter writes in the form of an assumption. As you come, he's there. Remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus cleared out the temple? I mean, he just turned the money changers upside down and just wreaked havoc on that moment. Growing up, I thought it was because they were selling pizzas in the lobby. Because in our church, when I was growing up, you couldn't sell anything in the lobby. I thought they must have done it then, and Jesus got really mad and threw everything out. So you're not allowed to sell anything in church. And then all of a sudden, everyone began to explore the process and, and thought, boy, this would be cool. Let's just go with Scripture and see what it says about why he did that. As opposed to what we think. We do that all the time. I love that verse. Where two or three are gathered, there I'm in the midst. And that's usually an excuse for only a few that show up at a prayer meeting. That verse was written in the context of Matthew and spiritual discipline. And he said, if you're going to deal with the issue of discipline, you need to make sure you have two or three witnesses. And that's a kind of a scary place to be. But I want you to know, as two or three are gathered, I'm right there in the middle of it. Because to be honest with you, when one gathers, Jesus is there. You don't have to have two or three. You have a thousand, he's there. You have one, he's there. But we look at these verses and we try to mix them up to try to figure out where they fit. Jesus came into this particular context here in Matthew and turned that place upside down because he says, you're giving these people the thought that they can't get to God. They're coming in, they they just want access to God. And you're saying, no, your acceptance, your sacrifice isn't acceptable. 
You can't get to him. You have to go through our booths. You have to go through him, to him our way. Matter of fact, what you're bringing is dirt, dirty and doesn't matter. Remember those days before Jesus, they had to bring a ram or a dove or some form of sacrifice. And, and basically what Annas the high priest was saying is, hey, they can't get to God through their stuff and with their stuff. They've got to buy ours and they jacked the price up. So that no matter where they bought it, it still wasn't acceptable and they had to now go and get rid of it and buy things at their place. And Jesus went insane with that, threw them out. And he said, my house should be called what? That's where we stop. And that's where we miss the analysis and the point of what Jesus is saying. My house should be called a house of prayer. And, we do, and that's absolutely true. And three out of the four gospels say that. And so we stop. See, God's house is supposed to be a place where we all pray, and that's why we gather together. That is absolutely true. But what we fail to do is quote exactly, and Mark is the only one that does, what Jesus said in Isaiah, when Jesus was quoting out of Isaiah, when he said, my house is a house of prayer for what? All nations. And that's the point of what Jesus was trying to get across. My house is a house of prayer for everyone. No one should be left out. And what you're doing is making them come your way through your means by their sacrifice and by your sacrifice. And my house is available to everyone. God will save you. And he threw them out. And obviously he turned everything upside down by dying at a cross and making God available to all. Now through him and him alone. And that his sacrifice would be the one that would be sufficient for all mankind. And Peter remembers all of that. And he writes, God, I found, every time I, I thought of this this morning, even in the first sermon, I, I thought what it must have been like for Peter, who lived through all of that, to now write this. You and I have read it a hundred times or a thousand times that we almost take it for granted. Peter is hearing this stuff through the Holy Spirit. He's writing it down. And I got to believe every once in a while he stops. And he remembers those moments in time with Christ. He remembers that moment when Jesus cleared that place out and said, my house is available to all nations, to everyone. And Peter says this, my house shall be called a, a living stone, a, a house available for everyone. Everybody can come to him. And as you do, he's there. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Peter to write this down. And then he continues to make, paint some amazing word pictures. He said, do you not only come to him, you come for a reason. You come with a purpose. You find your purpose in doing that. You, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house. And again, he elevates their value to God. This imagery here is a, an imagery reminiscent of the Jewish temple, one of the most sacred places in Jewish culture. That's why the Jew today is still devastated with what's going on in the center of Jerusalem. Peter makes this amazing statement that is important to them in that Jewish context as the temple was, the privilege of being a part of this, the family of God, the building that God is building is something so much bigger. You like living stones, he says in verse 5, are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a wonderful light. One of the commentators said, for a Jewish reader reading this to be a part of royalty was beyond their imagination. There's no way. I'm not in David's lineage. The only way you could ever be considered royalty to a Jew would be a part of David's genealogy. Being a part of royalty to most people are unthinkable. This newfound privilege of being a part of royalty to them would be an amazing opportunity. And here Peter paints this portrait and reminds us that our relationship with Jesus Christ levels the ground so that all people from every walk of life, from every nation under the sun, has the same status in God's kingdom that no one else would have ever imagined having. 
later down through the centuries as the a Roman would read this. A natural connection for them would be the same, but in their case, to the emperor and his family. And once again, it was beyond the scope of an ordinary individual that they would ever be a part of any royalty. But here the message of the gospel is that believing in Jesus Christ, we become adopted members of the family of God, connected with King Jesus, and we too become royalty. To become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, is to be raised to the ultimate height and status because we suddenly become children of the God of the universe and direct access to him because we are his children. That's what we become in Christ. People with a unique and lasting privilege, with a massive social change and massive status change. Living before a holy and sovereign God who by his grace made us his people forever. We've been elevated to the greatest places in God's kingdom. Those who rule with Jesus and minister minister the grace of God to the world around them. All of this has been given to us, not just as individuals, but to us as a church. Through the years, in the last 20 years specifically, I've been so tired of people beating up the church, or the opposite of that, saying, why can't we be more like the New Testament church? You do know that the New Testament church, as elevated as we make it at times, was dealing with as much envy, as much jealousy, as much immorality, as much rebellion as the 21st century church. And the church that we're beating up is what Jesus said is what I'm going to take to be with me forever in glory. The church that Jesus Christ died for and built has so much privilege and so much amazing potential. It wasn't designed or paid for by Christ only to be a cathedral of higher learning. It gains its identity and purpose from Jesus himself and what he came to bring it to be. In Matthew 16, when Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? There were a number of answers. Elijah, the prophet, John the Baptist. And then he looked at those group of guys and said, but who do you say that I am? It was very important that they understood that question. And it was very important that they understood the answer. And the answer was, or the question was to all of them, not just to any of them. Peter answered like he always does for everybody else. But the question was to all of them, do you really understand who I am? And 2,000 years later, that's still a great question to ask us as a church. Do you understand who indeed is he? Peter answered for everyone. He said, you are Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus made a profound statement which has been misinterpreted forever by some church circles when he said, you're right, and on that rock I'm going to build my church. And of course, we know the sequence of that where he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Many churches, Catholic Church specifically, has elevated Peter to that status as what Jesus meant by that was he was the rock and he was going to build, him, build the church on that because his name became Petros or Peter, the rock. And he then, to them, was the first pope. That wasn't his intention at all. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have been writing the way he did here in this particular context at all. He said, you're, you're Peter of stone. And your name is no longer going to be Simon Barjona as Peter, Petros, a stone. And, and I'm going to pull all these stones together and Peter imagines that and remembers that moment in time with Jesus and the other disciples in that place in Matthew chapter 16. And now he writes and he says, we're all living stones. See, the church of Jesus Christ was never to be built on a personality or even a theology. It was to be built on that that statement that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was to be built together with people who believe that into a large gathering that became the rock. Those living stones all put together to become the rock of Jesus Christ. 
A church was built up to make a difference, to be significant. The church's mission here in this particular context is laid out very clearly. It's to exalt Christ, change the world, and build up believers. That's what Peter says here in this context. We have the opportunity and the privilege of being a part of something unheard of in Peter's time. Not a cold cathedral or ornate temple, but something that is alive, that has value, meaning, and purpose. Your living stones being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you can declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We gather on Sundays to offer praise and adoration to God. And it's so much more than words or music or songs. Is it an expression of my heart and my soul, as we sang a moment ago, about what? <laughs> that I've been called out of darkness and I'm in light. That I'm not doomed or destined to defeat or discouragement or to decay, but I've been called out of darkness and I'm in light. You want to know what to sing about? You want to know how to praise God? You want to know how to sing with us on a Sunday morning? You are reminded by Peter that you once had nothing, no hope, destined to die for eternity, and now you're in the light of Jesus Christ, and you live for all eternity, and you come and have access to the God of the universe himself. Man, if that doesn't give you reason to sing, I don't know what would. So that it doesn't have to be stirred up by a worship leader or manipulated or manufactured. It ought to rise out of our soul, which is his passion, which is what he's trying to help us understand. That it's something we cannot do or cannot manipulate or manufacture. It comes out of our soul when we recognize who we were and what we are now. That's why it says, my soul pants for the living God. Not my voice or my heart or my words or my musical talent. But my soul longs to express that to you. But it's more than just what we do on Sunday morning or even in this stage. You can offer praise to God, which is exactly what he's saying, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God when you serve in a nursery, when you teach a class, when you help a neighbor, when you're involved in a ministry, when you make a difference for the sake of Jesus in your community. He uses this term, a royal priesthood, which is one of the main foundational sections of Scripture for the priesthood of believers, which essentially means that all of us have access to God. And ministry is no longer reserved for a select or chosen few, but the whole family of God. Because of Jesus, we all have access to God. Why the Hebrews writer could say, let us approach that throne with mercy and grace, with confidence that we're accepted. And when I don't know what to say and I don't know how to say it, God, by his Holy Spirit, says to us, I'll help you. In Romans 8, he said the Spirit will, 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 will pray for us. He'll take those things inside that we can't somehow put into words, and he'll present them to the Father. When I don't even know what to say, I've got the Spirit of God who's taking that stuff deep down in my soul, and he himself is presenting it to God on my behalf. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you possibly imagine the impact of what Peter is trying to say to these first century Jews? who never dreamed in a gazillion years that they would ever have this kind of privilege. But down through the years, it, it makes you wonder if people still get it. Many who come from a high church background think like they don't have access to God. And maybe they've been told that, that I, I've got to come to God through the priest and I can't have direct access to God and can't be for me. When Peter had been saying for 2,000 years, it's available to all. And even the ministry on God's behalf is available to everyone. 
Yet even 2,000 years later, there are people here that prefer that I pray for them as opposed to someone else or even in a hospital call with statements like, well, when's the pastor going to come as if their visit doesn't count? We all have access to the same God with the same authority, offering the same prayers. You see, it's not the prayer, it's who we're praying to. Now there are swings in the other direction that say, well, then we don't need pastors. We don't need those who minister. See, we all have the opportunity, and absolutely we do. Peter and Paul are both going to talk about the function and the role of those in ministry and those who have been given certain gifts to lead the church. But at the same time, he wants us to understand that all of us have the opportunity to be ministers of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Believe it or not, you can be a minister at the mill. You don't want to be, maybe? (laughs) You don't even imagine that anyone would receive that, but you can be a minister of the living God in the mill. You can be a minister of the living God in the hospital. Not as a visitor, but as a worker. Hospital people, I don't know if you, I, I know you appreciate them and I know you, you understand that, but they have one of the most amazing opportunities because people in those cases are in crisis. They don't know what tomorrow holds. They don't even know if they'll see tomorrow. And you as a believer in Jesus Christ have this incredible opportunity to be ministers of Jesus in that location of people who are in the most desperate times of their lives. You can be a minister of the living God at your school, in your school to your school, in your shop, in your office, at your office. You can be a minister of the living God. Do you realize the privilege that comes with that? I'm overwhelmed at the privilege that I've had in my capacity in these last number of years of ministry. It's not just me. It's not just available to us or a certain few. As much as I so value that you appreciate us and will tell us that in these weeks together. But all of us, can be ministers of the living God. I don't know about you, man, but that makes my day different. And it makes how I view my day different. And it makes how I view what I do different. Whether I'm in this pulpit or not. Today we're going to have the opportunity to end an exaltation. Because one of the things we do can do and, and have the privilege of doing as a corporate family of God is just come and give him praise. And offer praise to the living God out of the depths of our soul. And that's how we're going to end. During the second psalm, the deacons are going to come. And they're going to take an offering. And for some people, we did it in the first service. And that was my bad. We weren't supposed to stand while we did that. And some people, I can't take an offering while I stand. Yes, you can. You can reach deeper. One and another. <laughs> Kidding. It doesn't matter our position sometimes. It just matters the expression of our heart. But we want you this morning to finish in singing and celebration. And just giving praise and exaltation and praise to the living God. And then I'll come back up and pull it together and dismiss you for many people who want to enjoy a family experience.